Good morning. Uh, today, following the evening, uh, following the evening service, there is a teen inspiration. Uh, Pastor Josh said he's been announcing that, but uh, so he will. What do you want them to meet? All right, the Back Fellowship. Um, and then this week, towards the end, we have several things going on. There's a senior luncheon. Uh, sign up in the hallway there on the bulletin board. There's a college and career activity. Uh, this week we're doing it at uh, one of the seniors' house. If you are coming, please just let me know. Message me, uh, message my wife, um, just to help let us know, get a head count. And then there's a men's breakfast and visitation next Saturday, or this, sorry, this upcoming Saturday. Uh, again, sign up in the bulletin board. And then the first Bible quizzing activity for the teens is next Sunday. So it's coming quick. Our opening scripture reading is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. And we will start reading in verse 21. Ezekiel 36, 21. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out from all countries and will bring into you your own land. Then... Why sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols, which I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And ye shall be my people. And I will be your God. Our theme for worship today, let's focus on the inescapable need for the new birth. Before we go to the Lord in prayer, I did want to mention uh, two things. One, please make sure that you pick up a church directory. Uh, this is the new one for January, and uh, we usually do a review uh, about every six months, um, depending on if we've had a lot of new members come in. Um, but please pick that up, and it has pictures so that you'll uh, be able to see people's faces with their names. Um, also wanted to mention, since it is the beginning of the year, that we have our 2024 house rules. And when I say house rules, um, what I mean by that is that to upkeep our building, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes. And um, our church has grown. We have lots and lots of young people, which is a tremendous blessing. 
Uh, but with that comes the need to make sure that we keep things in order. And so I want to encourage your parents to sit down with your children this week. I want you to go through every single one of the house rules. I'm going to do that with my kids, and I would encourage you to do the same. And if they go, well, Daddy, you break that one. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Mom, you break that one. Um, that'll be a, out of the, ma- the mouth of babes and sucklings, I think is how the Lord Jesus put it. Uh, be just that general reminder that we need to keep things in order. And, um, you know, we've, we've added a couple things in there because with the Sunday night activities, uh, we have a lot more use of the back of the building. And um, we are asking that your children not be in any of the classrooms and not be in any of the lockers. And I don't mean like get locked in the lockers. <laughs> I mean, don't go into the lockers to get stuff out uh, because um, it, it really gets to be a lot to clean up. And um, so that is a, an additional thing um, that we're, we're putting in there. And um, we are actually gonna start locking the doors back there uh, to help the children not to go into the classrooms um, until there's a good uh, pattern if they understand you're not supposed to do that. But, uh, please do talk to your kids and um, just give them a reminder on those things. I'm going to do that with mine. They will probably break the rules, as mine do sometimes when <laughs> I sit down with them. And uh, there are ways to deal with that after they've done that. So I want to encourage you to make sure um, that we take good care of this building. And uh, it is a stewardship that we have. And there are folks that spend a lot of time, many, many hours every week, Uh, keeping the building neat and clean, and uh, just keeping things the way they need to be. So let's make sure that we take good care. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to bless our service this morning. Father, as we think about the text that was just read, we are so thankful for the miracle of the new birth. We think about how you put a new spirit within people's hearts when they trust Christ that they become new creatures and all of a sudden there are things that they once enjoyed that they're not comfortable with anymore. There were things that they once loved that they now, uh, they realize how empty and how foolish and even how evil they are. I pray that you'd help us as your people to have godly affections. Help us to live consistent with the position that we have in Christ. Help us not to resist the work of the Spirit in our own hearts. As we read the word of God this morning, I pray that the spirit of God would open our understanding to these truths and help us to recognize the weight of them and the significance and the beauty of them. And I pray that as we think about them practically, that you would really impress on our hearts how we need to respond to truth. And I pray that you'd help us to be godly people, help us to function um, with the distinction that we were created to have. And I pray you'll bless this service. May you be glorified in it. May it May it provide sweet fellowship uh, one with another as we uh, get ready to go home afterwards. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us for worship. Please stand with me. Open your hymn books to hymn number seven. Hymn number seven, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We'll sing all three verses.
number 20, praise him, praise him. Jesus, our blessed redeemer. Let's sing all three verses. Hymn number 20. Turn over to hymn number 25, Praise the Lord Who Reigns Above. Number 25, we'll sing all three verses.
singing this morning. Our scripture reading will be found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Luke chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. The scriptures say, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Doug, I haven't heard that song in about 20 years, I think. Jesus never fails. Praise the Lord. 
All right, our next song. It's actually number 520 for our musicians. I called an audible on us. It's the same song, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It, just a different melody. 520, we're going to stand for this one because we're going to sing the first two verses. And then on the third verse, we're going to pause. We're all going to greet each other with a handshake, greet one another. And then we'll come back together and sing the last verse, which is actually verse three for the folks in the sound booth. So 520, Redeemed How I Love to Proclaim It. Sing out this morning. song before the preaching will be in our blue book, number 192, Complete in Thee. 192, we'll sing all four verses. The last verse, we'll sing it a cappella. Sing out this morning.
be seated.
Thank you for that. Our children who are in junior church, uh, parents can take them to the back. And the rest of you, like you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 11 this morning, Luke chapter 11. And the text that we're looking at is verses 23 down to verse 28. Again, that's Luke chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Here's what the scriptures say. He that is not with me is against me. That's Jesus speaking, not your pastor. (laughs) He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. When he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. The last state of that man is worse than the first. Came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, the paps which gave thee suck. He said, He rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Some of you, when I read that text, you said, what in the world is this text communicating? Well, one of the challenges sometimes that we run into when we are interpreting a passage of Scripture is we tend to focus on the Scripture and not the Scriptures around it to help us to understand what Jesus is talking about. And so in order for us to understand this text and then to see how to actually apply it, we are going to spend some time reminding ourselves again of the context So that we'll know why Jesus spoke in what was really a a parabolic kind of a way. So let's bow our hearts together, ask the Lord, speak to our hearts through his word, and then we're going to dig into the tragedy of moralism without the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word. As we dig into this text and we recognize what Jesus had just done and how those who witnessed it responded to it, how it brought to a head a clash of worldviews. I pray that you would help us to see through all of what was going on in this text to understand that at the heart is what we do with the heart of man. I pray that we would see that there is only one way that can provide new life in Christ. There is only one way that brings redemption and remission of sins. There is only one way that implants the Holy Spirit in our hearts. There's only one way that enables someone to walk in the newness of life that we as Christians are called to walk in. And I pray that we would recognize this and that we would see how it applies even in the day in which we're living today. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to begin by summarizing the passage and then from that I want us to think a little bit about some of the things that we're witnessing in our society. I'm not going to go into great detail, but I do want us to think about it, at least in the big picture. So, Psalm, or excuse me, that was last week, Luke chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, show us that any religious or philosophical system that is incapable of addressing the root cause of sin and its greatest consequence is of no enduring value and leaves a person, catch this, worse than had they never encountered such a system. Let me say that again. Any religion 
or philosophical system that is incapable of addressing the root cause of sin and its greatest consequence is of no enduring value and leaves a person worse than had they never encountered that system. You say, why in the world does Jesus talk about demons leaving a person and then coming back to the same person whose life has been claimed and he decides to bring more with him and now the guy's in a worse situation than before. The reason that Jesus provides this statement or this picture, this illustration, is because he had just... He had just taken a man who was possessed by demons, who was under the the domination of evil, and he liberated that man. And then the people who witnessed it basically contrasted these two systems of thought. One was the prevailing system of the day, the religious leaders, and one was the true gospel. How a person is born again, new life in Christ. What God wants us to do is he wants us to embrace the life-transforming power of the gospel and to reject any substitute of that life-transforming power of the gospel. So I want to begin by a few observations. Our nation is at a pivotal moment in its history. Do you believe that? I believe that. Now, I know everybody says, you know, this is like the most important election in your lifetime. They've been saying that for a long time. Uh, people say, man, things are the worst they've ever been. And I think every generation probably says that. But the truth is, if you look at American culture, it's never been quite like it is right now. Now, there have been times that there were similarities. There's no question about that. There have been times that this nation has been in desperate places. But we've seen a rapid decline in basic ethics, morality, and family structure. And this decline touches every area of life. I mean, such a simple illustration of go to the drive-thru and order a burger and fries and ask them not to put cheese on your burger and see how long it takes and see if you get a burger without cheese. (laughs) And you say, well, what a simple little thing. Well, I hate to say it, but people don't work anymore. People don't listen anymore. People don't sit under authority and actually thrive in that environment. People abuse their authority. There's a complete breakdown of the family. I mean, look at how young people relate to their parents in the store. I know that kids have been snotty for all generations to their parents. And I know that there have been people that are not good bosses and people that have been difficult to have work under you. And I know that there have been problems in every generation. But there is a sense in which things seem a little different today. If you're old enough... And the country, if you're old enough to remember this, I'll say this, the country you live in today is not the country you grew up in. I had a conversation with my grandfather the other day. He's going to turn 90 this summer. And he kind of lamented about some of these things. We were talking about them. I try to be positive. I mean, I'm going to have to live for however long in this country and raise my children in this environment, so I want to be as positive as possible. But, you know, I can understand what he's seen and what he's lived through and what he sees how he feels about it. The fact is these changes have not produced a more vibrant, peaceful, and strong culture. We see a tremendous breakdown. So that leads me to some questions. How should we live and what should we do in times like these? It's a very fair question, is it not? Is there hope for our nation? 
It's a great question. If there is, I'm going to say there is, what is it? How should we pray for our country? In what ways can we contribute to the good of our land? Now, listen carefully. The text was not given to us to show us how to pray for America. But I will tell you this. If you understand what the text is teaching, you will understand how to answer all those questions. Not because the purpose of the text was to teach you how to answer those questions, but it's because this text is going to teach us on the foundational level how to answer those questions. I think a lot of the questions that we deal with in life, if we understood the foundations and the doctrines of Scripture correctly, we could answer a lot of these questions very easily or far better because we have this structure, this worldview, this foundation that we work from that helps us to make decisions about these things. And so this text addresses a biblical truth that is the foundational piece to being able to address these areas correctly. And what's really interesting about this text is that what Jesus is talking about in these verses is not just dealing with something on the individual level, though that is the primary focus, but I think he's actually even speaking beyond just this man in front of him, and he's talking about what was going on in the culture that he was living in that was ultimately going to crucify him. And the religious leaders and the mindset of the people of the day, how they thought he was literally confronting this by the words that he says. It's very interesting. So the first thing I want us to do this morning is I want us to consider the context because you will not be able to interpret this passage correctly. If you ignore the context, you will not be able to understand what it is saying if you ignore the context. And I think if we consider what was going on before these statements, it will help to it help us understand what he's saying. So, if you want to see the context, you got to go back to verse 14 of chapter 11. Here's what it says. And he, that is Jesus, was casting out a devil. And it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake. And the people wondered, but some of them said, he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. But knowing their thoughts said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also is divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. Now, I know that I preached an entire sermon on this particular text, but it was quite a while ago that we actually dug into this passage. So it's important for us to remind ourselves of what's going on in front of us, what we've just read. Christ heals a demon-possessed man, and he does it for a reason. Now, he's not just doing it because he's kind and compassionate. He is kind and compassionate, and that is a portion of what he's doing. But you will see this repeatedly throughout the Gospels. When Jesus performs a miracle, the way he does it, where he does it, who he talks to when he does it, it's all deliberate. And he does it to make a point. He does it to draw people's attention to some kind of truth that they have been able to see illustrated right before their eyes. And so what he's showing them is that the kingdom of darkness is evil and it's destructive. Obviously, this man's life is in great difficulty because of the presence of evil and this domination in his life. He's showing us that the kingdom 
of darkness is ultimately answerable to him. That's a very, very important piece of this story. He's showing that the religious system that was established in Israel at the time was completely incapable of addressing the root cause of sin. Now that statement is very important because that is going to help you to understand what he's saying in the verses we're looking at today. The religious system established in Israel, the rabbis, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers, what they believed was incapable of addressing the root cause of sin. It was not possible embracing that system that was established in that day to be saved from sin, to become a new creature in Christ, and to walk in newness of life. Because that system was dead. It was void of the truth. And so Jesus is going to draw this to a head to show us that this is in fact the case. And then he goes on to say this. Those who are deceived by this system are vulnerable to a greater misery than had they never come to embrace it. Did you catch that? That's really where he's going in what, we're going, what we've read this morning. Those who were deceived by this system were in greater danger than had they never, ever come in contact with such a system. I'll put it like this. It is harder to lead a person to Christ who is convinced they are righteous, who is convinced they are good, who is convinced that they deserve the kingdom of God and they believe it because of what they do and how they present themselves and the church culture that they are in, it is far more difficult to help that person understand they need the grace of God, the finished work of Christ alone than someone who's never come in contact with such an idea. Someone who is convinced that, in fact, they are living in misery because their life is saturated with sin and they're experiencing the painful weights of that sin. You take this self-righteous person and this person whose life is miserable and I tell you, you can show this person from the scriptures far more easily their needs than this person here. Why is that? Because of what they've embraced. This person's pride has just, those tentacles have controlled every aspect of their heart. And this person, you've got to convince them Jesus wants to save them. (laughs) That he can save them. That the cross is available for them, not just the people around them, for them. That's the sense that we're getting in these verses. And amazingly, those religious leaders accused Jesus of healing this possessed man by the power of Satan. It shows you how delusional they were. It shows you how proud, how the the tentacles of pride had so gripped into their souls that even when they see the subjective demonstration of the power of Christ over the kingdom of darkness, they will not. Not that they cannot, they will not. They will not allow themselves to even conceive of the fact that maybe Jesus is Messiah. And maybe what he's saying is true and what they're saying is not. They're not willing to consider that. He confronted their worldview in two ways. He reminded them that Satan will not overthrow his own kingdom. And number two, he demanded they explain how their followers were able to do the same thing without being guilty of the charges toward him. Now, these people, these religious leaders, the rabbis, they believed that they had the truth. 
they believed. They had people that worked within their, we could say, their worldview that believed they could help the demon-possessed man. And Jesus is saying is, is if your people help this man, whatever help they give him makes him worse in the end. That's what he's saying. He embraced the confrontation to expose the powerless nature of their religious system and to contrast it with the truth. And I kind of want to lay it out like this. I want to kind of make you think about the view of the rabbis and make you think about the true gospel message. These religious leaders, these rabbis, had something that was visibly attractive to people that want to do right. But under the surface was no power, no life. They kept strict codes of conduct. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about himself in Philippians chapter 3, he says, concerning the law, I was blameless. In fact, he says, I was a Pharisee. It was his way of saying, hey, you know, the Bible's got commands and then the Pharisees have more commands and I kept all of them. That's what he's saying. You couldn't throw some accusation against me and say, hey, Paul didn't do that. He said, I was meticulous. They were very careful to do their good deeds before others. So, they were regularly seen. I mean, like they literally walked out into the street corner and they said, I'm just going to pray for everybody here right now. Everybody, here we go. And he, all these long prayers and big words and all this kind of stuff. Say, so who does stuff like that? Well, there's people that do that. That's what they did. When they were going to give their money, they said, hey, check this out, guys. I'm about to give some money. I want you to see how much I'm giving. Why did they do that? Well, they wanted to be seen. So that people would celebrate them. And what would that do? That would embolden their sense of pride, which makes those tentacles go deeper. And ultimately, what does it do? It deceives them further. They maintained religious and political authority in Israel, giving the appearance of God's blessing. Someone says, well, man, if that church is growing, then God must be doing something there. Possibly yes, possibly No. Well, those people have a lot of power. God must be blessing them. Look at all the money that's flowing into their coffers. And so the people, in their minds, they said, these people have the truth because they have power. These people have the truth because they have money. These people have truth, the truth because they look good. These people, they are established. They had a morality that had no gospel, no regeneration, no new life in Christ. Their external righteousness was a hook that further strengthened the root of pride that permeated the motives for everything they did. Now, it's easy for us to say, well, I'm glad I'm not one of those people living 2,000 years ago because I don't have that viewpoint. And probably nobody in this room has that viewpoint, all right? However, sometimes our thinking drifts into this category. I mean, that's why the whole book of Galatians was written. People who were genuine believers were trying to add into the grace of God, all of these expectations that were part of the Jewish system. In other words, they were trying to add law to sanctify themselves. And he had to address that. On the other side, we see the gospel. The gospel confronts our greatest problem at the heart level. It calls us to see God's perfect righteousness as the standard. All have sinned and come short. There is none righteous, no, not one. Hey, the gospel speaks about sin, folks. 
you know, before someone in their mind goes, well, you know, you talk about grace, grace, grace. Well, there must not be any talk about sin. No, 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 no. You don't understand grace if you don't understand sin and guilt and righteousness and unrighteousness. The gospel demonstrates that. It shows us we all fall short and are incapable of bridging that gap. The very best thing I can give God is nothing. And earning my way into his presence. Don't miss that. Isaiah 64, 6. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There is only one kind of righteousness that God accepts. And that's the righteousness of his own son. The perfection of Jesus. And that's what the gospel says. The gospel says no human effort Nothing that I do for God, nothing that I promise to God can bridge the gap. Only the work of Christ. Now those are two very different systems. One's all about me, what I do, what I do, what I did, what I did, how I look, what people see, what I tell them. And the other is what he did. It's done. It's in the past. It happened 2,000 years ago. That's where our strength lies. The work of Christ is resurrection. It provides forgiveness of sins, cleansing, new life in Christ. It empowers the regenerate, those who are made alive in Christ, to live a life of eternal value, pointing people to Christ and contributing to the greatest potential for human flourishing. I believe this all my heart. The best way to help someone is start with the gospel. Because if their soul is lost, then what good is everything else you've given them? But there's another piece to this. A person who's a new creature in Christ is a new creature in Christ. And there are certain things that flow from that, that new disposition that they were not capable of as an unbeliever. The affections, the love for God, the warmth in the heart, the desire to walk in holiness, the enabling to do it. They were not capable of those things under that old system in their spiritual deadness. And someone who's alive in Christ can actually grow and mature and thrive and, and learn and mature. It provides a steadfast anchor to stabilize people through the most difficult and harshest imaginable circumstances to the day that they enter their eternal rest. That's what the gospel does. I ask the question, which one do you want? <laughs> do you want the dead religions of this world or do you want the truth that is in Christ? So let's go from that context to think about the content of the text itself. In verses 24 through 26, I'll read it again, and then I want to kind of work our way through what he's saying, I think. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest, finding none. He saith, I will return unto my house whence I came, and when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh of him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. They enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now the focus of Christ's parable is the man who is just healed from demonic possession. The man had, a, had had a terrible spiritual problem. He was enslaved and afflicted by Satan's power. Both Christ and the Pharisees offered this man hope. Only Christ could really help the man. Because he addressed the man's problem at the source, at the heart level. The Pharisees could not help him in such a way. 
And when he talks about them leaving and then the house being swept and then him coming back, you know what he's saying? He's saying that's the way the Pharisee deals with the heart of a person. He presents this facade. It's all external, but is of no power to bring life, to replace what was there with what is new and what is alive and what has the power of God working in them. The man's life is an illustration of what was happening, not just in his life, but even on the national level. The rabbis offered a system that had no power to transform an individual or a nation, which was simply a macrocosm of the individual. When you look at this man's life, and you see what, was, what he was dealing with on the personal level, and you see the, the rabbis trying to help him on this side, and Jesus trying to help him on this side, guess what? There were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people just like him who were in similar crossroads in their lives. And all those people together, you know what they made up? They made up a nation of people. (laughs) In other words, what you're seeing on this small level is compounded all over the place. Whether you realize this or not, whether you think about it this way or not, the problems that are going on in this country, they're all happening on personal levels. You take all those individuals and you put them together in families and you put them together in communities, you put them together in states and you put them together under this government. Guess what? They're all contributing to something as a nation. They're all contributing. And that's what this man was. He was a picture of what was going on in the entire nation itself. And Jesus is bringing to a head what's going on. Next thing I want you to notice is in verse 23. It's it's amazing what Jesus says here. He says, there's no middle ground on the issue. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth. Now, we we say, you know, when you have a conflict with somebody, you got to find a middle ground and you got to kind of, you know, you give a little, they give a little, and eventually you can work things out, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's like, there's truth and there's error. This is the watershed. You've got to embrace the truth. Or you're on one of the two sides of error. He is saying, you're either with me or against me. Either you're contributing to the problem or working toward the solution. And the benefits provided by this empty religious system made things worse, not better. Verse 26, he that goeth and taketh to him seven spirits more wicked than himself. They enter in, they dwell there. The last state of this man is worse than the first. Jesus is saying, if you deal with him and you help him, he will be in a worse place. You're not just doing that with the individual, you're doing it on the national level. That's what he's saying. Only real life in Christ can save from eternal destruction and transform the whole person. That is the point of what Jesus is emphasizing in this text as he gives this parable and he talks about this man and he talks about this scenario. If this happens and this happens, here's what's actually taking place. But I want you to see that the Bible is full of other examples that talk about this very concept. One example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Listen to what it says. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. 
And he's writing to the people at Corinth who that was the way most of the people in their community lived. And so all these people are asking, well, is it possible for somebody from Corinth to become a Christian? Is it possible for someone from Corinth to to enter into heaven someday, to, to be delivered from the wickedness of their sin? And he says, and such were some of you. Guess what? The gospel could save anybody. He says, the gospel saved you, and you guys were just like that. He says, but ye are washed, sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, what's the point? The point is this. God can save anybody. Salvation comes through the work of Christ. And when somebody gets saved, such were. But ye are. There's a difference. This is who I was. This was my identity. This is how people saw me. This is the way I lived my life. I even embraced that. And today, I'm a new creature. Is Paul suggesting that they stopped dealing with sin? Of course not. Read the rest of the book. You'll know that they were dealing with sin. But their identity changed. There was something alive in them that wasn't there before their conversion. And I think that's the sense of what Jesus is getting at. The gospel gives life forgiveness, the power to walk in newness of life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before. Blasphemer, persecutor, injurious. That's what Paul said. But I obtained mercy. I did it in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of God was more exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. What do these things show you? Gospel gospel can save anybody. Salvation comes to Christ. And there's a transforming dynamic that takes place because there's new life in someone who was once spiritually deaf. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Let me take the context of the content and kind of give you a simple expansion. Christ and the apostles passionately confronted this danger of a moralistic religious system that replaced the gospel and allowed people to build up their credentials and their pride who are ultimately keeping themselves from the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 11, verse 39, we're not there, but we're actually going to teach on this in a couple of weeks because that's where he continues. It's obviously on his mind. It's obviously what he's thinking about. He's obviously confronting this issue. Christ says in verse 39, 39, now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward parts are full of ravening and wickedness? Jesus says, watch out for a system that only cares about what others can see. Lots and lots of people say, well, man, I don't sin. I don't do bad things. You say, well, have you ever been proud? No, man, I'm not proud. You ever hated anybody? I mean, I never killed anybody. I've never like thrown something at somebody and and injured them and then I had some problem on my hands. You ever coveted? 
Oh, I've never stolen anything. You, uh, you ever been dishonest? No, I mean, never. <laughs> Woo, all right, all right. Let me step back from you for just a second. Jesus says, watch out for that system. All they care about is what you see. In verse 42, he says, watch out for a system that is meticulous about arbitrary details, but ignores the most serious aspects of a righteous life. He says, woe unto you Pharisees, ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over the judgment and the love of God. Somebody goes out in their garden and they're like, well, you know, I'm going to take the, the tithe of my, of my mint. By the way, you'll, you'll, it'll, it'll keep coming and keep coming and keep coming, let me tell you. You're so meticulous about that little detail that frankly is kind of unimportant. It seems what, like that's what Jesus is saying here. But then things that are very serious and very obvious, you totally ignore them. Watch out for a system that uses religion as a tool to get power and money. Verse 43 says, Woe unto you Pharisees, you love the utter, uppermost seats in the synagogue and the greetings of the marketplace. In other words, they took their religious system to puff themselves up and to get themselves in the positions of power and authority. By the way, you, you can't do that when a society becomes very pagan, but you could in that day. I would say in America, you probably could have done that 50 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago. Watch out for a system that develops burdensome rules that God never gave then exempts people from these rules who've given them. Verse 46, Woe unto all you lot lawyers. You laid men with burdens grievous to be born. You yourselves touch not the burden with one of your fingers. Watch out for a system that replaces the gospel. He says in verse 52, Woe unto you lawyers. Ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye enter not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. What's his point? His point is, there's two ways. Now this way goes into lots and lots of different forks. It's like if, it's like if you're looking at a family tree. There's like, there's the truth, and then the family tree of human self-righteousness. And it goes into all different branches. But every single one of these branches, all the little ones, all the big ones, they're all essentially coming to the same root. It's about me coming to God through my righteousness, my good deeds, what people see me doing. The other one is, look at Jesus. Paul warns about this in 2 Timothy 3. He says, in the last days, perilous times shall come. And he says, people will have a form of godliness, but denying the power of the earth. What do you think he means by that? He's talking about people who appear to have the truth, but spiritual deadness inside, because they've not embraced the real truth. In Colossians chapter 2. Verse 20, he says, he warns about if you that are dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why? Though living in the world are you subject to ordinances after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Another way to put that is you have this system created by man for man that has no power no power to conquer the heart. No power to transform a person. No power to save them. Yet you embrace it. You say, well, how do you apply something like this? Well, the simplest way to put it is you've got to build your life on what's true. You know, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically says there, there was a guy, he built a house, and he built the house on sand. 
There was another guy, he built a house and he built a house on a rock. A huge storm came and the house on the sand just was destroyed. And the house on the rock stood through the test of the storm. Why did Jesus say that? He's saying, well, there's two ways you could build your life. You could build your life on what is true, what God says, or you can build your life on anything else that the world offers. We must build our lives on what is true. Something that saves, something that transforms on the heart level. How we feel about what we believe and how it looks doesn't make it true. This is one of the tragedies of the time we're living in. A lot of people believe that you can kind of like have personal truth that's personal for you, but it might be different for somebody else. I mean, like, well, you know, just speak your truth. Tell us your story. Well, what if your story's a lie? What if your truth is, is a complete lie? Well, I don't care what your story is. <laughs> I don't care what your truth is. I want to know what the truth is. I want to know what the facts are. I want to know what actually happened. You say, well, that hurt people's feelings. Well, sometimes in the short term, it's better to just confront the issue than to have to deal with it forever. That's really the point of what Jesus is saying. I want to read to you an excerpt from a book that I, I really enjoy. It's called Christless Christianity. And I think it really encapsulates what Jesus is teaching here. He said, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Some of you go, well, it looked like a lot of cities in America today. <laughs> if Satan took over Philadelphia, and that is what the person wrote. Um, actually, this was stated in the 1950s. So Philadelphia was a little different then than it is now, but this is what he says. And he was a pastor in Philadelphia for many, many years. Very well-respected pastor who, wrote, who, who spoke this on the radio in an address. If Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. Now, by the way, I think it would be great if all those things happened, okay? And this preacher actually believes that too. But he's going somewhere. He said, there'd be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday. Where Christ was not preached. That's the key. If everybody started tidying up their little places, all the kids started obeying mom and dad, we started removing vices from our cities. And by the way, we couldn't do that. Okay, but if we could, if we could, but there was nothing under the surface that saved those people from eternal destruction, you would have very moral, tidy, respectful people that were on their way to a crisis eternity in hell. And I would say this, if you want to see transformation on the societal level, it starts with the grassroots, the problems we see in a society today, are they are the symptoms and the downstream effects of a society that has rejected God for many, many decades. I would say even generations. And so you don't reverse that by just putting a bunch of rules in people's lives. You reverse that by what was being taken away, being replaced... And as time goes on, and that takes root, eventually it will filter out into the other areas of society. You know, when I think about something as simple as the founding of this nation and the principles 
that we're so clearly being influenced by the Bible. Well, the reason that we had such a form of government was because there were so many Christians, so many people that were truly converted. And even those who were not truly converted, they knew Christians all around them. They were influenced by Christian thought. And the simple fact is, things like the Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s and 50s are the reason that this country was founded the way that it was. Had those things not taken place and had the worldview of the people been different, you wouldn't have had the society that was established in this country. And so the very simple fact is, as he puts it in in this statement, he says it's easy to become distracted from Christ as the only hope for sinners. Where everything is measured by our happiness rather than God's holiness. The sense of our being sinners becomes secondary, if not even offensive. If we're good people who've lost our way, with the proper instruction, motivation, we can become better persons. We need only a life coach, not a redeemer. I listened to a lot of Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons. And Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 1950s, this was not Martin Lloyd-Jones who said this, but he hammered this point in so many of his sermons he said everybody wants to teach morality in the schools morality 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 and they say all of you churches quit talking about jesus and the cross and the resurrection and new birth in christ don't talk about those things just give us the rules that we're supposed to live by they say it doesn't work guess what you have you have what you have in the uk today and we're moving in the same direction Only the gospel and the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit regeneration can save from eternal destruction and transform people. So the questions that I want to go back to are, is there hope for this nation? Absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. I mean, unless the rapture's tonight, (laughs) which it most certainly could be. I know a lot of people are rooting for that, right? (laughs) Probably a lot of us are rooting for that. What if the rapture's... 150 years from now. Certainly possible. Could be tonight. Could be after we're all dead and gone. The fact is, is there hope for this nation? Yes, there is. But the hope for this nation is in the gospel. The hope is the transforming power of the gospel, taking root in individual lives. How should we pray for this country? We need to pray that God will bring a reviving to real churches. Churches that actually preach the gospel, that the people that are leading those churches will actually preach the word with clarity and conviction, that the people in those churches will have a heart that says, I want to live in light of the position that I have. I want to raise my family for Christ. People who are willing to plant themselves wherever God has them in society. Christians aren't supposed to go live in communes, folks. We're supposed to live in the community. We're supposed to actually be salt and light where God's planted us. The truth is that we as his people shouldn't try to pull away from the public sectors that he's planted us in. We should live as Christians in those places. They're very dark. How do we contribute to our nation's good? Don't build your life on a lie. Develop real biblical discernment. Prioritize your life correctly. Love the gospel. Live like a real Christian. Point your children to Christ. Be a faithful Christian wherever you're planted. Proclaim the gospel wherever he opens those doors of opportunity. You say, Joel, that's going to take too long. I'll never get to see that. That might be true. 
But the fact is you have no idea what God is doing in history. You have no idea what he's doing in history. What's amazing is if you read what some of the people who lived through the 1720s and 30s said about their society, it wasn't the rosy picture we get of early colonial America. It was a very, very promiscuous society. People went to church and they weren't embracing the truth at all. There were lots of unconverted ministers. I mean, when, when sinners in the hands of an angry God was preached at a church, lots of people were converted in that church, okay? That means most of the people there weren't saved. The fact is you have no idea what God's going to do in this land. And our job is to just be faithful and to trust him with that little faithfulness we have the opportunity to have. Let's bow and ask the Lord to help us to do that. Our Father in heaven, as we think about your word, as we think about this parable, this illustration of a man who had been demon-possessed, whom Jesus healed, who brought to a head the clash between two worldviews, I pray that we would recognize that the only hope for people begins with dealing with the soul, begins with the gospel, begins with new life in Christ. And I pray that we as your people would live like we believe that's true and that we would be distinct in the places you've planted us. We'd be humble, gracious, godly people who have conviction and do what's right and bless our fellow man. Help us to raise our families well. And Father, we pray that we would be a faithful people till you return, whether tonight, whether in five years, or whether we die before that day. May we be found faithful. May we contribute to the good of this land. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. Please, let's pull out our hymn books. The song we're going to close is 511. Only a sinner. Only a sinner. And that's what we are. Only sinners. Saved by grace. Please, let's stand. Let's sing these three verses together. And I want to encourage you. Ask the Lord to help you this week. Take the truth of Scripture and apply it practically on a day-by-day basis. Let's sing it out.
like to ask if, Grant, if you could come and please close us in prayer this morning. And I hope that many of you will be able to join us this evening. And uh, stay warm this week. It's supposed to get cold and snow, snow goose in me is really hoping that uh, I could take my kids ice skating in the backyard this week and uh, sledding at Gork Park. That's, that's what I'm hoping. I'm not praying for a foot, don't worry. But uh, just praying the Lord's will be done and we get to do those things. <laughs> so Grant, please close us in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenge from your word. I pray that you would help us to be that light that is so desperately needed in our community here. I pray that you will be with us this week with the potential for some weather coming in. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.